0: Well, I thank you for the opportunity to be here today. Um, uh, Reverend Carlisle and I go back and are knowing each other, and so it's a great delight to be able to share and worship here. I've actually been on this property many, 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 many times as you've hosted retreats for the annual conference and training events Uh, downstairs in the Fellowship Hall. I remember a lot of really good meals. Uh, In fact, I always was excited when they said, oh, we're going to El Segundo's because I would be coming here for the, the meals, whatever else was taking place, so thank you for your over the years hospitality. Um, I'm going to dis- disappoint uh, our liturgists this morning because um, I'm not talking about Beelzebub at all, um, or Beelzebub, or any one of those other other bubs, or Beetlejuice, um, not, aren't on the topic today. Uh, Every congregation uh, should have a Malcolm Sears. Uh, Malcolm Sears was an octogenarian in my Northridge congregation who was like a little sprite uh, who happened around the campus and whose eyes always sparkled with an interior joke. Uh, In fact, every time he showed up on campus, which was usually Monday to Friday and Sunday, uh, he would have his joke for the day. Uh, he'd a, he had been a horticultural teacher in the Los Angeles School District in the San Fernando Valley, and I have a feeling his, his students always got their joke of the day. Uh, one of his favorites, and sometimes you'd hear repeated patterns, uh, one of his favorites was, how many Methodists does it take to, to change a light bulb? And you go, I say, I don't know how many. He goes, Change? Malcolm resisted change, and so it was always fun because it was kind of a joke on himself, you know, a little bit of recognition that he was a little, heels he dug in. But uh, one of my favorites, uh, he would come and say, uh, Pastor Mark, uh, do, you, uh, do you know why uh, cemeteries are so popular? And i go, playing along, no, Malcolm, I, I don't know why cemeteries are so popular. And he says, because I don't either, but everybody's dying to get in. You've heard this one before? Yeah. That's Malcolm uh, and he he reflected that sense of uh, joy and humor and delight. Uh, But I I took that, uh, that particular joke as I was reading through this passage and reflecting on its background that indeed there are people dying to get into this community of faith that Jesus has called us to, longing to be part of it, who stand outside the boundaries of that community, who exist just beyond the welcome of the existing community of faith. And it's happened throughout the course of the Christian community. The earliest challenge the church faced was whether to welcome in the Gentiles. They longed to be part of it. They were dying to get in, but the church wasn't sure that its existing boundary between Judaism and Gentiles was was part of Jesus' world. And they had to reflect, do we welcome these people or not? forward, you know, 1800 years or 1700 years, the church is still, was still wrestling with whether African people, black people, could be a part of the church. The African, Africans who had been brought uh, to slavery in the United States had heard about Jesus, had heard the stories of liberation of Moses, had heard of this crossing over to the other side. They wanted, they longed to be in that community, to experience that grace. And yet the church for centuries wrestled with where was the boundary? Do we allow them in? And it eventually divided the Methodist Church and the Presbyterians and the Lutherans, North and South, from one another because they couldn't discern together where the boundary line was. And so with women. Now, women had been a part of the church, obviously, but not a full part of the church. And every one of my congregations, and I served five different congregations. Uh, one United Methodist Women's Sunday there would be some woman who come up, came, would come up to me and say you know I, I just want to be an usher because I wasn't allowed to be an usher when I was growing up I just want to read scripture because I wasn't allowed in my church to read scripture and worship it always boggled my mind. It was the source of the evolution of the Women's Service Guild, uh, the Wesleyan Service Guild, the uh, uh, WSCS, which were the predecessors to the United Methodist Women. They, they couldn't be involved in the mission that men were of the church, so they created their own mission world, their own mission field, their own way of being in mission in the world and now the united methodist church is wrestling once again with its boundaries related to people whose uh, sexual orientation is different than our own and they are wrestling and it may split the church Come, you may have heard about what's happening and there will be a special general conference to discern how welcoming can the church be how does it hold this line or does it say how do we extend the hospitality of christ a challenge facing the church. So this longing and the boundaries and borders are still an issue in the life of the church. And it draws us to this passage in the Gospel of Mark this morning. Jesus has been called to a ministry of inclusion, a ministry of hospitality, a ministry of welcome. And he draws people to himself who yearn to be in relationship to the kingdom of God which he proclaims. This kingdom, this this community of grace and love. That Jesus portrays in parable after parable the kingdom is like. And so we read the passage this morning and all of a sudden in chapter 3, notice as early as chapter 3, Jesus is in trouble, right? It hasn't been that long, I mean Jesus has uh, been baptized, he's been in the wilderness, he's called some disciples, he's healed a few people and already he's in trouble, Now I don't know about your pastors here at El Segundo, but I know it usually took me at least three to six months uh, appointed to a new church before I was in trouble. I mean, that's like six chapters in, right? There's time to create a stir. Jesus is only now just in the third chapter and he's created problems. And we know this Because the two gatekeepers, the two border guards in Jesus' society were the religious community and the familial community. And who shows up in chapter 3? The scribes and Jesus' family. His big mistake? Going home. They don't know what to do with this Jesus. All of a sudden, he is crossing the, the boundaries that society is ready to keep. To understand this, we have to know that Jesus lived in an honor-shame society. Now, I'm sure Reverend Carlisle has talked to you about honor-shame society, but just in case you forgot, an honor-shame society is built on the acquisition of honor as a way of showing success. And that's not just personal honor, honor to oneself. But when one gathers honor to oneself, it it brings honor to the family right? It raises the family and the esteem of the community, and it raises the community in the esteem of the the larger community, the nation of Israel. So your goal in life, and you were taught this from little, in fact, you didn't even need to be taught, you just saw it. You associated those with those people who brought honor, and it would bring your family honor, and they would would affirm you for that. However, on the other hand, if you affirm associated with things that brought shame to the family, you also shamed the village and shamed Israel. And there were circles of shame. People who were outside the boundaries of welcome. Sick people, poor people, tax collectors. Remember the tax collectors and sinners, that phrase is repeated. That if you associate with those people, you bring shame to your family. You dishonor them. And then in the community feels that same sense of weariness. To associate those with those who are ill, sick, with anything that has to do with blood, with uh, people who deal with animals and pigs, there was an order. And Jesus chooses to associate with all those people who stand outside of the boundary. So it isn't a matter of what Jesus has done or what Jesus has said that draw the Pharisees, scribes and his family to, the, to this point it is who Jesus does it with he must be crazy he's associating with shameful people come and, and control your son he's bringing shame to the village that's what's going on in the passage and Jesus, yet Jesus continues to welcome sit at table with and to sit at table was to make others your family to sit at table with shameful people as family what a dishonor what a threat to the well-being of the community and that's exactly what jesus does and he says who is my who are my mother my brother my family these people god's children the ignored the rejected the despised, these are my family. I want to tell a little story about, about families I discovered uh, over the last couple of years. Two years ago, uh, when I was about ready to retire in the spring, I was diagnosed with uh, non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, stage 4. And uh, as you can tell, I'm, I'm not dead Don't have a cancer, so it's not a story about me. But I went through the six sessions, uh, cycles of chemotherapy, and my cancer was such that I needed a a stem cell transplant. So I did that in October of 2016, and uh, that's where they basically kill your bone marrow and they revive you by re-injecting things. The only problem was that is when you when you die in that process, uh, your body goes through trauma, and so I I lost 40 pounds, a lot of muscle mass. when I got home in November, walking around the block without losing my breath was like, woohoo, you know? And uh, so it was, it was a challenge. I finally got to the place where I could uh, ride a acu- uh, recumbent bike. and uh, I, But I couldn't do the normal things I do, which are swimming, going to the gym, to recuperate because my immune system was shot still. But I could, once I got enough strength, ride a bicycle. So I said, how do I... Because there's no... You know, not a lot of germs when you're on your own riding a bicycle. So how do I keep this up? And I recalled the few years before, I had seen this advertisement, I think on Facebook, of the most beautiful, America's great, most beautiful ride up around Lake Tahoe. I thought, well, that would be beautiful. And I looked it up, I couldn't do the 100-mile bike. Uh, I couldn't ride two blocks, but I couldn't do the 100-mile, and I couldn't do the 72. But they offered a 35, and I said, in six months... I might be able to do that ride. So I signed up with a team in training uh, through the uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, uh, and it met every Saturday. And I found some amazing things about this uh, this, uh, Leukemia Lymphoma Society, LLS. Team in training does a really good job of staying focused on its mission, which is to cure blood cancer. That's its mission, three words, cure blood cancer. And every time we would meet, they would have... a a witness, a mission moment, we would call it a witness in church, somebody speaking to how that had changed their lives and how they had gone through this, and it was almost like going to church, you went, you had a witness uh, to the mission, and then you trained for it, discipleship, right? So I thought, oh, this is a good model, I could learn some things, and on one occasion, uh, they brought in a person to share their, their story, their mission moment, uh, Chief John uh, New. Uh, he is the chief investigator for the district attorney in Los Angeles. He came and shared that uh, he and his daughter, uh, that uh, his wife had been diagnosed with uh, lymphoma. And it was devastating. It was uh, stage four. They said, we, the treatment for this is really challenging and uh, the odds are not good in this, in this case. Uh, So he devastated, did what everybody else does when you get a diagnosis or you have symptoms. What do you do? Now, some of you are going to say pray, but Google it. (laughs) Isn't that true? You get a symptom. Oh, my hip hurts. Hip hurts. Google, right? Lymphoma. What do I do? So he Googled it, and he kept looking up and finding out more information, but he kept seeing this LLS keep popping up. Leukemia Lymphoma Society. And he and his daughter were pretty raw. So he called up and just said, "Uh, This is what's happening. This is the diagnosis we received. He left a message on a Friday morning. And uh, we're just looking for any help we can get. And he thought, Well, it's Friday morning. You know, nobody's going to call back till Monday. But Friday night, he got a call saying, How can I help you? and they talked together and she pointed out that there was a support system, a support community group in his, uh, nearby his area and so he and his daughter went uh, to this group and after hearing stories, sharing people who've been through the disease itself, others who were caregivers and their experience, he looked at his daughter and said, we're home. We're home. They had found a place where they were understood, where their experience was shared, and where they could draw strength. Isn't that an image of the community of faith? We're home. Two things occur to me about that. One is we are home. We have a home. You've experienced it in the, the prayers you lift up for one another in small groups where you sustain each other, when you recognize when people are going through challenging times. You experience that, uh, that being home with one another when you bring food, when somebody's come home from the hospital. Uh, you experience that when you send car- uh, sympathy cards to one another when someone's gotten ill. As a pastor, I've certainly done my share of visiting people in the hospital and follow-up and all that kind of uh, relationship stuff. And I knew that people in my congregation were sending cards. Um... You know, I don't know how many or at all, but I knew that there were cards that would go out. And there's, of course, the official card from the church. But when I had uh, leukemia, uh, I mean lymphoma, uh, I was the recipient of those cards that kept coming and kept coming and kept coming. Uh, It was an amazing experience of being surrounded by a community. Now, I'm not the pastor there anymore. I'm retired, but the cards kept coming. We are community. We are home to one another. And that is encouraging. It's life-sustaining for us. Unfortunately, some of us stop there. I experience, I don't know how people do without this kind of community. Isn't it great to have? And we're done. But Jesus doesn't stop there. We're not only in the work of being community with each other, but building the community with others. We are a community for others. And it doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. It happens when we move into our our neighborhoods and our our lives and we extend that welcome and hospitality that Jesus extended to the broken and the lost and the excluded. Now, it can happen on Sunday morning at church. Somebody walks in that doesn't fit our profile, right? They smell funny. They talk funny. They look different. um, They act different. uh, They dress different. And we have to check, how are we welcoming them? How are we making space for them? In one of my congregations, I had a woman who was a greeter at our church. She always stood at the front door, always greeted people. She was one of the best greeters ever, until she got in her pew seat. Her pew seat. <laughs> if, if some some stranger dared, happened to end up in the third pew back on the, my, your left side uh, on the aisle, she would kindly ask them to move. Oh, you're in my seat. How do we make space for one another in the church but beyond? I've been reading a book called The Art of Neighboring. It's written uh, by a, a pair of uh, pastors who discovered that their church just didn't know how to enter into relationships or people didn't know how to enter relationships and they found that they they weren't good neighbors at all they didn't know how to relate to the people in their neighborhood Uh, they didn't know how to bypass the boundary of fear and anxiety that the neighbor creates our world is such as that isn't it we have these fears of other we've been taught uh, to be safe Uh, we've been taught you know to avoid dangerous situations or stranger danger but how do we interact with neighbors when, whom we don't know? And they suggest we start in our neighborhoods like the people across the street. Uh, how do we know them? How do we engage them? Start with little steps. He tells a story of a young, a young girl in elementary school who walked across the street with her mother one day. They were exchanging with the, the neighbor. They didn't know very well. But the mother was just saying to uh, her mother how her kids were really having a hard time in school. So the little girl took it on herself to walk over every afternoon and ask if she could help the kids in the household who were younger than her with their homework. That's neighboring, a very simple step. But it begins to break down the barriers and build relationships. Uh, my wife, Trish, isn't here with me this morning, she's at her church. Um, but she, uh, she's really good at neighboring. She walks the neighborhood and there isn't anybody that she doesn't, can't know in like five seconds. We went to the movie theater two days ago and she has hearing aids and she used closed caption things. So she picked it up. As we were walking in, she noticed a, a person, very like, a similar appearance to her, uh, who had hearing aids. And so they happened to bump into each other and Tricia was holding her closed caption thing. And the woman inquired... They spent 10 minutes, luckily we were really early for the movie, <laughs> or I wouldn't have been happy about this, but she spent 10 minutes in lovely conversation with this person explaining it. I could see her at some distance, I, was, I didn't want to intrude on the conversation, but gestures, they were reaching out, they were touching each other, they were having a great old time, she was neighboring. It's just, you know what, she, she, I'm, I'm amazed at that ability, but also challenged by it. So I can now extend myself a little more. Now that I'm retired, to my neighbors and figuring out who they are. This is the challenge we face because it's in reflecting on this sermon. One of the suggestion was to have congregations look at how their bulletin welcomes people or how their facility welcomes people, and what what could be done about that. And I thought that's that's an, I, it's about church growth, but it's the most ridiculous invitation I'd ever heard because it is something somebody else gets to solve. The secretary fixes the bulletin. The janitor fixes the sign. Whatever it is, it's something somebody else does. Jesus requires something of us to look at our interior boundaries, to look at the places we hold others out and ask that question. So for people who are different than us, who have a different sexual orientation, how do we look at the internal barriers we have and boundaries we have to be clear about them, to be open about them, to review them, to walk with Jesus and ask, is this the place we need to be extending hospitality? Let me finish the story of uh, Chief New. His, it turns out his wife needed a bone marrow transplant, which is a fairly challenging event, finding a match and a donor. There were no donors that matched in her family, so she went on the worldwide registry of bone marrow transplant donors. Weeks went by as they waited to hear if somebody would would respond, and eventually they got a call. We have a donor from a remote town in Germany. It was amazing to them, and uh, a, a real gift. And the young woman said, I'll, I'll go to the hospital, I'll go through the procedure now. Uh, unfortunately, she was also uh, getting married in a couple of weeks. And her family said, convinced her to wait two weeks to get married first and then worry about the bone marrow. And they checked with the doctors and I doctor said, no, that's, that's fine, nothing's going to happen in two weeks. So she got married, but instead of a honeymoon, she went to the hospital, checked in and had her bone marrow taken and transported. It was, uh, the procedure was done to the uh, chief news wife, and it grafted well, and she began to recover. After a while, they thought, you know, we really want to thank this young woman from a remote village in Germany uh, who went through this for us, and so they... uh, called, made arrangements to talk with her, and invited her to come to America, her and and her husband, uh, so that they could say thank you. I said, well, I can't fly now. I'm pregnant. So he said, well, that doesn't stop us from coming to you. So they boarded a plane and went to Germany in this remote village and uh, met the family, and it was one of those extended families where everybody lived on the neighborhood block, you know, brother, sister, uncle, you know, they were all in the area. And on Sunday, everybody went to church. That's not true in every place in Germany, but in in this little town, they all went to church. So they showed up, and amazingly enough, the worship service was being conducted in German. Who would know? So they were sitting there kind of, you know, just enjoying the service and the music, and all of a sudden, as the pastor was speaking, uh, they heard their names mentioned. And John went, looked over it, the the young woman who spoke some English, and she said, oh, he's lifting up that the people we've been praying for uh, through this process are here today with us. And he looked at his wife and they've been praying for us? And uh, so after the service, the pastor asked him to be at the door with them as people came out and hugged. You know, there couldn't be much other dialogue unless they spoke English. But they were just amazed at the prayers that had been going on for a year on their behalf. And they looked at each other and John said, we're home. We're home here. Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, has opened up doors of love and grace that extend beyond the boundaries that keep expanding to welcome God's children. May it be so for us that our hearts lay down our borders to welcome in God's children. Amen.